Good morning. Hey, imagine with me that you are the first follower of Jesus. Now think about this with me. Imagine you are the first person, the first one, the first disciple, the first, the first follower of Jesus. What would that be like? Well, say you spent your very first afternoon, you spent, got to spend some time alone with Jesus, and you were the first one to do that. What would you ask him? What would you want to talk to him about? How would you feel in that moment when you realized you're Jesus' first follower? Good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm the Groups and Disciple Making Pastor here at Genesis Church, and we're continuing in our series today called Humans of the Bible. And we want to look at some of the real people in the Old and the New Testament, and so we're spending eight weeks looking at eight different people. The people in the Bible uh, are not fictional characters in a storybook. They're real humans, just like you and me. And we want to look at their life story and learn from them. And this morning, we are looking at the Apostle John. The Apostle John. Now, the Apostle John is one of my heroes. He really is. He, uh, he's one of the people I'm most looking forward to meeting in heaven. Maybe you've got someone in the, in, in the Bible like that. I've read John's Gospel more than any other book in the Bible uh, I, I find him fascinating. I think he's got an incredible life story. He's a, he's a very unique person. And just for clarity up front, because sometimes it can be a little confusing, that uh, John the Apostle and John the Baptist are two different people. Right? John the, John the, uh, John the uh, Baptist is older, and he would eventually be killed by King Herod. John the Apostle is younger. He was probably in his late teens when he first met Jesus. And John the Apostle will eventually become one of the 12 apostles who uh, John also write, wrote the Gospel of John. John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the Apostle John also wrote the book of Revelation. So he wrote five books of the Bible. Well, young John the Apostle had an older brother named James. And together, James and John and their father Zebedee had a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And young John was also uh, a follower of John the Baptist, actually. John the Baptist was baptizing and teaching people before Jesus came. John had a baptism of repentance. Uh, his message and his teaching was a message of repentance. In fact, did you know the very first command in the New Testament belongs to John the Baptist? He gave it in Matthew 3. And the first command in the New Testament is to repent, to repent. And so God was using John the Baptist and his ministry to prepare people like the Apostle John for the arrival of Jesus. Well, Jesus' ministry begins the day he shows up to be actually be baptized by John the Baptist. And after Jesus is baptized, he goes off into the wilderness and he, he spends 40 days alone fasting and praying. And afterwards, he returns, and he comes back to where John the Baptist is and some of his followers. Well, John the Baptist sees Jesus arrive one day, and he walks up, and John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God. Two of John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew and young John the Apostle, hear John the Baptist say this, and those two young guys approach Jesus. Well, Jesus turns to them, and he asks them this question, What are you seeking? Recorded in, the Apostle John recorded it in John chapter 138. Jesus turned and he saw them, two of them, Andrew and the young Apostle John, who's writing this gospel later in life, and he says, what are you seeking? It's the very first question Jesus ever asked any of his disciples. What are you seeking? What are you searching for? And we know this question must have left an impression on the Apostle John because he recorded it in his gospel. 
Now, the word for seeking here is the Greek word zeteo. It's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. Zeteo is defined as to seek in order to find or to seek after. Or it can also mean to aim at or to strive after. If you can picture a dartboard in your mind's eye, and you can picture a dartboard with the bullseye in the center, when you throw darts at the dartboard, you aim for the bullseye. That's your aim. That's what you are seeking. Whether we realize it or not, all of us have a bullseye in our life. All of us have something we are aiming our lives at. All of us are seeking something. Let me ask you this. If Jesus were here today and he were to ask you that question, what are you seeking? What are you searching for? How would you answer Jesus' question? What would you say? Well, John and Andrew answered Jesus' question by actually asking him a question. And they say, well, can we spend some time with you? And Jesus says, sure. And so the three of them spend the afternoon together. And so these two guys, Andrew and young John, they get the high privilege to be the first followers of Jesus, the very first disciples who got to spend time alone with Jesus. We think they probably spent somewhere between three and six hours with Jesus that afternoon. They go have a cup of coffee with him. Spend the afternoon with him, and when they get finished, young John and Andrew, they leave that, that conversation, and they declare, we have found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, they declared. What I want to point out to you is this, that they found what they were searching for. Have you found what you're searching for? You know, we are broken people living in a broken world. Maybe you've seen this gospel tool we've used here at Genesis. We call it the three circles. We're broken people living in a broken world, but that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's design. God designed us to uh, live in a close relationship with him and with each other and to live in a perfect world. And so the question is, how did we get from God's perfect plan and design to this broken world that we live in? Well, it's something the Bible calls sin. Sin is any time we turn away from God and selfishly insist on going our own way. And when we turn away from God, our, our creator and our source of life, it leads to brokenness and ultimately it leads to death. If you break a branch off a tree and put it on the ground and come back to, to it a week later, will it be alive or dead? Audience participation. Death, right, right. Why? Because you broke it off from its source of life. When we turn away from God, our creator, our source of life, it leads to brokenness and death, both here in this life and for all eternity. Now, here's the thing. At some point in all of our lives, we realize that we are broken people, right? We realize something's not right with me. Something's not right with the world. And so what happens is we inevitably go on this search and we start seeking. And we start seeking to find some things uh, other than God to find life. And so those four little arrows there represent the different things in this world that we seek to find life in. Some of us seek to find life in money and success. Some of us turn to relationships. Others of us try to be good people. Some of us turn to drugs or alcohol or even just work, some kind of addiction, to numb the pain that what we're really looking for we can't seem to find. What we're searching for, we, we haven't found. And what happens is we just go seeking life. We seek to find life in things or in people other than God. Well, here's the good news. I don't want to, you're like, thanks for this uplifting message here this morning, Kevin. Here's the good news. The good news is this, that Jesus loved us too much to leave us in our brokenness. And God sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus was fully God 
but he came to earth and he became like one of us. And Jesus never sinned. Jesus never turned away from God's plan. He always obeyed God. And he obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. And he died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. The consequences of breaking a tree, uh, uh, breaking a branch off a tree is death. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. The consequences of our sin is death, but Jesus took the consequences we deserve on himself when he died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He paid the wages for your sin and mine. And in his death on the cross, we can find forgiveness of sins. And that's good news, but it's not enough just to know the good news. The Bible says we have to do two things. We must turn away from our brokenness. We must turn away from selfishly living life our way, and we must put our faith and our trust in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And the best thing happens when we do this. We are given new life and a new identity and a new purpose, and we now have the chance to follow Jesus and God's design for our life. That's good news. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never, you've never turned away from living life your way and put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Jesus says to, you, to us today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Maybe today you need to make the decision to turn away from living life your way, and you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus, make him the Lord of your life, put him in the driver's seat of your life, make him the king of your life, and you need to follow his leadership in your life. Maybe you're sitting here today, it's probably most of you, and you've already made that decision. Maybe you made that decision to put your faith and trust in Christ and receive his forgiveness, receive that free gift that he paid for on the cross. Maybe you made that decision a year ago. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you made that decision 30 years ago. Regardless of where you are today, I want, you, I want to show you that Jesus offers us more than just a ticket to heaven. The good news isn't that Jesus offers us a ticket to heaven. The good news is that Jesus offers you and I life. Jeremiah 2.13 says this. My people, this is God speaking in Jeremiah 2.13. God says, my people have committed two sins. It's not complicated. The two sins are this. Number one, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He says, my people have turned away from me, their source of life, and what they've done is they've sought to find life in their own way. But they're broken cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold water. Today, I want you to know that Jesus isn't just a way for us to be saved from hell, although that's true. More than that, Jesus is our source of life. The message today is this, that real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. And this is the message I think the Apostle John would give us today if he could come and talk to us. If he could summarize his life message, his gospel message in one, in, in one sentence, I think this would be it. Now let me show you why I say that. The Apostle John was not only one of the first two disciples to spend time with Jesus, but he was also one of the three who were closest to Jesus throughout his ministry. If you look at the Gospels, Peter, James, and John, those three guys... Uh, clearly spend more time with Jesus. I, I, I went to, uh, anybody know the name Pete Souza? Does anybody know who the name Pete Souza is? If you know who Pete Souza is, would you raise your hand? Nobody knows who Pete Souza is. How many of you know the name of Barack Obama? Raise your hand. 
Everybody knows Barack Obama. Nobody knows Pete Souza. Do you know? Let me, t- let me tell you who Pete Souza is. Pete Souza was Barack Obama, President Barack Obama's uh, personal photographer for eight years while he was in the White House. And Pete Souza followed Barack Obama everywhere for eight years. I follow Pete Souza on his Instagram account. I find his Instagram account fascinating because it's amazing the intimate and up-close personal view that Souza had for eight years of the president. He had an up-close personal front-row seat of the, Barack Obama's presidency. If there was one person... There was one person who was closest to Jesus, who had an up-close and personal view, intimate view of Jesus' life and ministry. I would argue it's the Apostle John. So we have something to learn from him. Let me give you three examples of how close of a relationship John had with Jesus. First, about nine months before Jesus goes to die on the cross. About nine months before he goes to the cross. So his ministry is about three and a half years long. So about two and a half years into his ministry, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. And he goes up on a mountain with just the three of them to pray. And while Jesus was praying, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus and have a conversation. I don't know if you've ever read the story. It's absolutely mind-blowing. But think about this with me. Moses and Elijah had been, di- had been dead for hundreds of years, but they come from heaven and they manifest their presence and they talk to Jesus. It says they had a conversation about Jesus' departure, which was only about nine months away. Isn't that unbelievable? Peter, James, and John get a front row view of this. If that's not enough, when Moses and Elijah disappear, go back to heaven, a cloud, we're told, descends on the mountain, and from the cloud, God the Father from heaven audibly speaks to Peter, James, and John. And he says from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, listen to him. It's the same thing he said, the Father said to Jesus uh, two and a half years earlier at Jesus' baptism. Well, Peter, James, and John hear this, and as you can imagine, they fall to the ground terrified, right? I would too. And then they get up, and Jesus says something to them that is crazy. He says to them, now listen, don't tell anybody about this experience until after I raise from the dead. So for nine months, Peter, James, and John have to keep this secret to themselves. That was very unkind of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing the voice of God and having to keep that as a secret between the three of you for nine months? Let me give you a second example of how close John was to Jesus and some of the intimate experiences he had with him. Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the very end. And they're going to pray for a few hours before Jesus is arrested. And when they arrive in the garden, Jesus tells eight of them to hang back, right? Because Judas is already gone. Uh, he's gone to betray Jesus. And so there's, yeah, there's frankly, there's probably 11 disciples, uh, 11 apostles. And so Jesus tells eight of them to hang back and pray. And then it says in the text in Mark 14 that he took Peter, James, and John, and they went a little further into the garden to pray. Look what Mark 14 says. It says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, Jesus said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Here's what I want to point out about this. This is unbelievable to me. It says, after, after he went a little further with Peter, James, and John, then he began to be deeply distressed. Then he bared his soul, and he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Jesus bore his soul to just three people in his most uh, intense moment of his life. And John, the apostle John, was one of those three got to experience that powerful, intimate moment with Jesus. Let me give you a third example of John's closeness to Jesus. Later that next day, probably within 24 hours, Jesus is crucified. 
And John, once again, experiences a unique moment with Jesus. While Jesus is on the cross, he looks down, and he sees the apostle John there, and he sees his mother Mary. And he says to John, hey, John, I want you to take care of my mom. And he says to Mary, his mother, I guess he said mom. I don't know what, he, I don't know, what, he, what does Jesus call his mom. I guess he says mom. Mom. Hey, mom. Uh, I, John's going to take care of you. Okay. Uh, he, he took, I mean... Let's think about this for a minute. Can you imagine being the one that gets entrusted with the care of the Savior of the universe's mother? That's unbelievable. John takes on the responsibility to care for Mary, Jesus' mother. Imagine the amount of trust that Jesus must have had in John. Imagine that close relationship, this up-close-and-personal view that John had of Jesus. John had a remarkable story. He was maybe the closest person to the Savior of the world. Well, after three and a half years of, of spending time with Jesus and cultivating this close personal relationship with him, uh, the Apostle John learned that real life, I think that real life, his message would have been real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. Real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. Let's look at a couple of things in John's gospel to kind of uh, put the pieces together here. John says in uh, John chapter 20, verse 30, 31, read this with me. John's writing, and he says, the, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. He, John's saying, hey, by the way, Jesus did a whole lot. I can't, I can't cover them all. Here's, here, I've covered some things. And then he says this, but these are written so that you may believe. Here's why I wrote my gospel, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is, wrote, notice this, is John chapter 20. This is a concluding kind of summary statement John, the Apostle John, makes at the end of his gospel. He's summarizing his message for us. I think you could summarize that in saying real life, eternal life, is only found in having a close relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you why. I want to highlight two words, or really two concepts, that John introduces here, and really John covers throughout his gospel and throughout his writings. The, first, the two words are this, the word believe and the word life or the concept of believing, and the concept of life. John says he wrote the gospel that we may believe, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. Now, Webster's Dictionary today defines believe like this, to accept or regard something as true. So in our culture today, if I believe that the earth is round, it means I accept or regard that that is a true fact. And that's what John means when he uses the word believe, but he means much more than that. It's a much richer, uh, deeper meaning. The word that John uses for believe is the word pistuo, pistuo. It's a really significant word because John uses it 98 times in his gospel, 98 times. Luke, in his gospel, only uses it nine times. Mark only uses it 11 times. Matthew only uses that word 14 times. And yet John, in his gospel, uses it 98 times. One author said you could call John's gospel the gospel of belief. Now, here's the thing I want to point out to you about this word belief. It's a verb, not a noun. It's a verb, not a noun. Here's why that's important. We are called not just to be uh, belief, to a belief as in a past tense or complete belief, but we are called to be, uh, uh, have an active, ongoing lifestyle of believing. See, for many Christians, for many Christians, they see salvation in Jesus as something that's past tense and complete. In other words, you've trusted Christ for salvation in the past at a certain point in your life, and it's almost as if they say, well, it was in the past, back then I received my ticket to heaven. 
Now, the Bible does say when we believe, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're sealed by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a, we are given a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But Beth Moore in her study, uh, author and, and uh, speaker Beth Moore in her study on the Apostle John poses this question. She says, to, says, is the scope of your belief in Jesus in the past tense security of salvation kind of belief? Or can you be caught in the active, ongoing lifestyle of believing Christ? In other words, more rights, are we simply nouns, believers, or are we verbs? Are we believing on a daily, continual basis? I'm afraid that many Christians are nouns and not verbs. It's okay to be a noun, having believed. I believed in the fall of 2001. That's past tense. It was complete in that sense that I was uh, eternally adopted by God. But my belief in Jesus didn't end there. I've tried to live an ongoing lifestyle of believing. Many of you would say the same thing. Let's be verbs, not nouns. Eugene Peterson kind of catches the heart of this when he paraphrases John 20, 30-31. Peterson writes this. Jesus has provided far more God-revealing signs that are written down in his book. These are written down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in the act of believing. Do you see how how, uh, Peterson paraphrases that phrase? It's in the act of believing. It's the ongoing lifestyle of believing that we have real and eternal life in the way Jesus personally revealed it. And so Peterson is getting at this active lifestyle of believing, not just a past tense noun of belief. And then he also points to the other word we're going to look at here is the word life. And, and, and Peterson paraphrases it by saying having real and eternal life. The Apostle John uses the word life more than any other gospel as well. Let's look at another passage of John's. Uh, this one is in one of his letters. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 to 13. John writes this, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Different book. This is a letter John writes, not his gospel, but same message. John is saying, listen, real life is found in Jesus. He is our source of life. Notice how many times John uses the word life in this passage. He said God has given us eternal life, one. And in this life, two, is his son. Whoever has a son has life, three. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life, four. I write these things to you so that you may know you have life, that you may have eternal life, five. Five times, five times in three sentences. In this summary statement, Jesus, uh, John uses the word life. I, I'd say he's trying to tell us something, wouldn't you? Now, the word for life here is the Greek, translated in Greek, uh, with the Greek word zoe. Zoe life, here's the point I'm trying to get at. Zoe, when John says Jesus came to give us life, it's more than just being alive. Zoe life is described as real life or genuine life. It can also be described as the fullness of life. Zoe life is a rich and satisfying life. I'm familiar with this term because that's what we named our second daughter. And she lives up to her name. Look at this picture of Zoe. Oh, my goodness, isn't she great? Isn't that great? She's so adorable. Now, when you look at that picture, do you think, oh, yeah, there's Zoe. She has life. She's alive. No. When you look at that picture, you think, man, look at that little girl. She is what? Full of life. She's full of life. That's an image of the kind of life 
that Jesus came to give you and me. That's the offer. That's the invitation that Jesus offers us. He came to give us real life, genuine life, abundant, full life. That's what Zoe life looks like. Now, how do we experience that life? It happens through a close relationship with Jesus. A close personal relationship with Jesus is where we're going to find the life we're looking for. Now, why do I keep saying that? Well, it's because Jesus defined eternal life as a close personal relationship. Here's, look at John 17, 3. The apostle John recorded for us that Jesus said this. Now, this is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Sometimes Jesus spoke in third person. And if you're the savior of the world, you can be a little weird. Uh, But Jesus says, I thought that was funny. Jesus says, uh, now this is eternal life. What's eternal life? Or better yet, when does eternal life begin? Based on that passage, look at it. When does eternal life begin? It begins when we come into a knowing relationship with the Father and with Jesus Christ. Eternal life begins when we enter into the relationship. And the word for know there is one of my favorite words. I probably use it every three or four times I preach. If you've been around a while, you've heard me harp on this word. It's one of my favorite words. I think it gives us a great vision for what God's desire is for you and me in our life. The word for know there is the word gnosko. He says that they gnosko you. What what does gnosko mean? Well, it's not a a knowledge based on just facts. It is that, but it's it's more than that. It's knowledge that not just that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but it's more than that. It's a knowledge that's grounded in personal experience. Or it can be defined as to be intimately acquainted with. It's knowing about something versus knowing or being familiar with it. If I go knock on the White House door today, are they going to let me in? No. Why? Because they don't know me. But if Ivanka Trump goes and knocks on the door, are they going to let her in? Sure. Why? Because she knows the president. I could write a biography about the president, but that doesn't mean I know him. She knows him. She's has a knowledge grounded on personal experience. She's intimately acquainted with him. This is the kind of eternal life that Jesus came to give you and me. This is the offer for us. Now, with that definition of eternal life in mind, let's look at some of the experiences uh, that John, that the Apostle John had with Jesus and that he records in his gospel. And I think you'll see this pattern and this message emerge from the life of John, that real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. Let's start out with Nicodemus. So Jesus is once, he's teaching at one point and he's up in uh, Jerusalem teaching. And uh, he's up at the first Passover. And uh, later that night, uh, one of the Jewish uh, leaders, one of the religious leaders, a guy named Nicodemus, comes to see Jesus at night. Now, all of the religious leaders at this point were very skeptical. Some of them were already rejecting Jesus. And so Nicodemus doesn't want any of his other buddies to know this. And so he comes to Jesus at night. We call him Nick at night. So Nick at night comes to Jesus, and he wants to have this conversation with Jesus. And long story short, here's what Jesus says to him. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, listen. Nicodemus, real life 
real life, the life you're looking for, Nicodemus, is only found in a close relationship with me. Let's look at another example. The Samaritan woman. Jesus is going uh, one day, and he's, he decides, he, I, feel, I think he's led by the, his father, to go through Samaria. And he comes upon a woman at the well. And you're probably familiar with this story. You've been around church for a while. And he has this interaction with this woman at the well. I, wanna, I want you to notice what John records about what Jesus said to her. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered. He told her, Everyone who drinks this water from this well that they're standing over will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of life welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying to this woman? She's saying, I am your source of life. The life you're looking for, real life, satisfying, rich, abundant life that you are searching for is only going to be found in a personal relationship with me. At one point, uh, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And this was a big no-no. You didn't do this. And so the religious leaders get really upset. The Jewish leaders get upset. And they begin to attack Jesus. And Jesus tells them, listen, I healed this, I healed this person just because I'm doing my father's work. And this was Jesus' way of kind of making himself equal with God. Well, this really set off the Jewish leaders at this point. And at, from this point on, they really want to kill Jesus because he's really blaspheming. He's, he's, he's claiming to be God. And here's how Jesus responds to them. He says to them in John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes, believes in Jesus has what? Eternal life. How did Jesus define eternal life? Close personal relationship with God. That person will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. He's not talking about a, a, a literal death to, to, to life. He's saying a spiritual death to being spiritually alive. Jesus comes to offer a spiritual life. Verse 25, very true, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead, the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Listen, some of you are hearing the voice of Jesus for the very first time. Right now in this season of life, Jesus is whispering to you. And he's saying, come to me. And he's drawing you to himself. The Father is drawing you to Jesus. And you can't explain what's happening in your life. There's some things, some consequences. There's some issues or, or some circumstances that are happening in your life. You don't know what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on. Jesus is drawing you to himself. And you're beginning to hear the voice of the Son of God. And he's trying to bring you life. Jesus one day is feeding 5,000 people. Right? Remember this story? He feeds 5,000 people. Probably some scholars say between 15 and 20,000 include women and children. So it's huge. He performs this huge miracle. We're enamored with that miracle. Wow, what a miracle. And it's incredible, right, that he feeds all these people. But the next day, they come, and they come back to him. And he says, da 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 da, da. That's my version of a Jewish rabbi. Um, I, I don't know why. Uh, and, uh, he, he says to them, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Don't be enamored with a miracle. I was trying to teach you something. I was trying to illustrate something to you. Look what he says to them in John chapter 6. Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. You're looking for bread in this world. You're looking for things in this world to bring you life. And Jesus says, listen, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever has a personal relationship with me, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I am your source of life. He goes on in, in a few verses later, verse 47. He says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. 
I am the bread of life. Do you see this pattern that John just keeps showing us over and over in his gospel? Another time, Jesus is teaching at one of the festivals. And in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 38, it says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice. By the way, I kind of like it that John says that Jesus said in a loud voice. Because sometimes I can be loud and I appreciate that. So uh, Jesus says in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What's Jesus saying? I, I, a personal relationship with me, is, I'm your source of life. He also, one other, another time, he's teaching, and he uses the illustration of shepherd and a sheep. And in John 10, 10, he says, listen, I'm the good shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some, older, some of the older translations say, I've come to give you life and give you abundant life. That's the life Jesus offers us. A little bit later in verse 20, John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they, they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. Guess what word? John uses there for the word no there. Gnosko. My sheep listen to my voice. I gnosko. I have a close personal relationship with them, and they follow me. In John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I gnosko my sheep, and my sheep gnosko me. Just as the Father gnosko me, and I gnosko the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, here's what's incredible. Here's what's incredible. Jesus here says this. If you look at the first half of that verse, he talks about his relationship with us. In the second half of the verse, he talks about his relationship with God the Father. And what he says in the middle there is just as, which means this. The kind of relationship that Jesus wants with you and me today, here on earth, our life, the kind of relationship he wants with you and me is the same kind of relationship that he had with his heavenly Father while he was here on earth. Isn't that incredible? Jesus wants the same kind of close, intimate, life-giving, rich, abundant life relationship with you that he had with his father while he was here on earth. In fact, I think that's the, that's the thing that John saw in Jesus. That's the thing that John saw in Jesus. John saw, John witnessed that Jesus' source of life was his close relationship with his heavenly father. Let me give you one more example. It's the vine the branch story. Once again, uh, this is towards the end of his ministry, and uh, Jesus uh, uh, has had the Last Supper, and after the Last Supper, he's going to head up to the garden where he's going to have that three hours of prayer before he's arrested, but before he does, he stops somewhere along the way, and he gives them one last lesson, and it's the vine and the branch. And he says, my father's the gardener, and he says, I am the vine, and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, who's the vine? A little louder. Who's the vine? Jesus. What's the role of the vine in the branch's life? It's to be its source of life. The vine is the source of life. Jesus, saying, Jesus is saying, here's my message to you guys. One last message right before he goes to the cross, three and a half years. You think he taught them enough. You think they'd have got it by now. But three and a half years into his ministry, he's at the very end. And one last time he summarizes it and he says, listen, Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to take with you. I am the vine and you're the branch. I am your source of life. And then he says this. Here's what you have to do. You have to remain in me. And the word remain is the word minnow. And it basically means to stay relationally connected to. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, stay relationally connected to me because I am your source of life. And then he makes them two incredible promises. 
And if you had to pick what the most important word is in that verse, what would you pick? I would pick the word if. I think if's the most important word because those two promises are tied to the word if. He says, if you remain in me, if you stay relationally connected to me, if you make me your source of life, here's promise number one. You will bear much fruit. You will experience everything that God wants for your life. You'll experience the kind of life God wants you to live. You will experience God's plans and God's will for your life if you stay relationally connected to the vine, if you stay connected to your source of life. That's the first promise. That's incredible, you all. That's an incredible, inspiring, encouraging, hopeful, good news message that Jesus promises you and me. Do you believe that promise? Let's be a church family who believes the promise that if we stay relationally connected to Jesus, we are going to bear much fruit, that he's going to do all kinds of things in us and through us, and that our lives are going to bring him glory, and we're going to experience the kind of life he wants. But he makes a second promise that should be sobering. And that second promise is also tied to the word if. And the second promise is this. If you don't stay relationally connected to me, you can do nothing. If you and I don't stay relationally connected to Jesus, we are not going to bear any eternal fruit, any fruit that really matters when we stand before him. We worry about so much in this life that's not going to matter when we stand before Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I'll give you the solution to the problem. Stay relationally connected to me. Make me your source of life. And if you do, you'll bear much fruit. And I think this message has such an impact on the Apostle John that later in his life, when John is writing now to his disciples in 1 John 2, 28, here's what he says. Now, dear children, he's writing to his disciples, not his biological children. John, this is John now writing to his disciples. Now, dear children, continue in him. Guess what word that continue in him is? It's the word minnow. It's the word remain. It's the word abide. It's the, it's the stay relationally connected to. He says, dear children, stay relationally connected to Jesus so that when Jesus appears, we may, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let's just all be reminded this morning that one day we're all, all of us, all of us are going to stand before Jesus face to face. And some of us, some of us, Hopefully all of us would be wise to follow John's advice and to stay relationally connected to Jesus to make him our source of life so that when we stand before Jesus, we can be confident and unashamed. Don't you want to, when you stand before Jesus, don't you want to be confident and unashamed? Here's a sobering reality. A lot of Christians won't be. See, the inverse is is true of this, that those who don't make Jesus their source of life, when they stand before Jesus, they're going to lack confidence and be ashamed. And it's not kind of this, it's not, a, it's not a message of condemnation. Jesus isn't saying, if you don't stay relationally connected to me, if you don't make me your source of life, I don't love you, or I'm not proud of you, or I don't accept you. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is saying is, you won't experience all that I have planned for you. And when you stand before Jesus, you and I are going to realize, oh, oh, is the minute we stand before Jesus, we're going to realize, he he really was the vine. He really was our source of life. And we're going we're gonna to think, oh, I, I wish I would have stayed even more relationally connected to you because I'm, we're going to realize how much he's our source of life. And so here's the question I have for you today as we close. Here's the question. Really simple. Is Jesus your source of life? It's an important question that we all must answer. I don't know how seriously you're taking that question, but I, 
I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. That's a really important question that everyone needs to answer. Is Jesus your source of life? If he's not, here's how you should respond this morning. You need to repent. You need to repent. For many of you, you've been Christians for a long time. But like me, you find yourself tempted at times to look for life in something or someone other than Jesus. I try to find life in accomplishing great things and being successful in the eyes of others. And I've been trying to repent of that and to change that and turn away from that. Because I don't want to try to find life in someone else's opinion of me. I want to find life in what Jesus says of me. I want to find life in that relationship. Maybe today, maybe today you need to identify what is it you're looking for that's, that you're searching for to find life in something or someone other than Jesus. Maybe today you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and you need to do that for the first time. Joel and the band, Joel's going to play a little music and I'm going to give you a time actually to pray a prayer of repentance right now. Because Joel 2 says this. The writer of Joel 2 is different than the Joel who's leading us in worship. Just for clarity. Uh, Joel 2, God says, the, God says this, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Return to me with all of your heart. Return to me. That, that's the picture of turning back to God. That's, that's repentance. Return to me with all of your heart. Maybe you've had a divided heart. And sure, you look to Jesus as your source of your life, but you look to some other things to bring your life to. Maybe today you need to return to Jesus with all of your heart. Maybe you need to rend your heart and not your garments. Joel continues to write. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. I love that. I want you to know this morning that our heavenly father is gracious and compassionate. He's not angry with you. He's abounding in love. He's offering us an invitation. He says, come, come to me, come to Jesus and find your source of life in him. I'm gonna give you a minute just to pray a prayer of repentance and to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to be my only source of life. Why don't you go ahead and pray? Father, we want to be a church family that believes the promise and believes the truth that, Father, you're the gardener and Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And we want to be obedient to you. We want to remain in you. We want to stay relationally connected to you, Jesus, that you are our vine, you're our source of life. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church family repent and return to you, our source of life. Help us to return to you with all of our heart. And Lord, I trust that you are going to bear much fruit in us and through us as individuals, as families, as a church family, Lord. May you bear much fruit in us and through us, fruit that brings you glory, fruit that shows how awesome, Jesus, you truly are. You alone, Jesus, are our source of life. We pray this in your name. Amen.